Well, it's nice to be here. Um, good morning. We meet in the evening, so I'm used to saying good evening. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Garrett Susie, and um, I'm the pastor of the church called Christ the King in Belfast, and we're about five years old this next coming month. Um, we were a church plant, and I've shared my testimony um, here before. I'm thankful to be walking with the Lord. I'm thankful to to be working in the church. I also teach at a Christian alternative high school. Um, my wife is named Siri, and uh, she's here with me and our six children, and our seventh is due in June. And um, so uh, one of my students at school says, Mr. Susie, you're personally responsible for one billionth of this planet's population. <laughs> I was like, that's right. Well, we all have to do something, right? <laughs> um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the church before we get into our text. Um, I appreciate your prayers, and I appreciate the support um, and, um, and the kind words and the edification and encouragement we get when we come here. And um, I'll just let you know, I, I said this when Blake and Carrie were at our fellowship a little bit ago, Blake preached, but um, I've been really encouraged in my interactions, especially with, with Blake and Aaron. And um, look up to them both. But being here has been uh, very formative. This fellowship is really um, healthy in a lot of ways in the things that we see happening. And, you know, every fellowship isn't perfect, but um, we've desired to model a lot of what we've seen here. And we feel really blessed to know that you guys are here and hope that you're blessed by this place as well. Um, it's, it's a gem and really um, edifying for us every time we come um, even just recently, you know, just as I was sitting here during the service, one of the things we've been talking about, we have an, another elder now and we have um, other people in, in training. And one of the things we've talked about is how do we go from the, the noise of announcements and that stuff to like a, like a place of worship, right? And I just noticed just what you do here, just like oh, there's a transition and just the calming down and... It's like, you know, we've gotten a lot of cues from you guys, even just practical ones, which are helpful. So just wanted to encourage you with that if that if that is helpful. Our fellowship has seen um, some really neat things happen. The Lord's saved some marriages and he's allowed some to fall apart and some people experiencing a lot of sorrow and brokenness and um, Christians walking with people through that. Um, he's allowed us to see some people come out of not not having any closeness or intimacy with the Lord to a place of caring deeply about the things of God. Um, and like every place, um, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, you know. And so there are people there that are nominal and sort of interested, and there are people there who are desperate um, for the gospel. And our prayer is that in the whole state of Maine, that God would really move um, in power and reverse the statistics um, at present which is that this place is one of the most disinterested places in the gospel um, in this country. And that hasn't always been the case, and we pray that that will not stay the case. Why don't we go into our text together and read the text. We're in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it would be page 1520. Page 1520, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 14, starting at verse 13, we'll read through 21. 
page 1520, starting at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Father, please anoint the proclamation of your word by your spirit with power that it could reach the souls of the men and women and children here. That it would be true food, bread from heaven. We would find true sustenance and nourishment from it. That we would be changed, made into the image of that which we eat. I pray that you would have your way with us, that you would reach the hidden chambers of our heart. Where no one else has access. Convict us of our sin. Lead us into righteousness. I ask that you would whet our appetites for Jesus and for the gospel. Put in us a burning that he become more precious than we ever thought he could be. That we become more thirsty for living water than we thought possible. And that we might in him both drink and thirst. I ask you to go past all the distractions and diversions that we all bring with us. Our anxieties, our, di- our discouragements, our loneliness, our feelings of alienation, the things that plague us in our minds, even as some may be sitting here feeling alone and like an alien. Like the world they're living in is light years away from the place their body sits. Meet them in that place and draw them to your side and to your body and to your people. Be glorified. Please move in Southwest Harbor and in Belfast. Let the gospel call be clear and plain. Let those who presently rebel against you bend the knee, yield to you, proclaim your goodness, and call out to you as Lord.
In Jesus' name, amen. I've called this section, Let the Hungry Come to the Lord. Um, Just as a setup, what's happened in Matthew's account is the death of John the Baptist. So if you haven't read a few verses back or if it's been a while since you've been in this chapter, Jesus had just received news that John the Baptist has been executed. So Siri and I, like most parents, when we're training our kids, we try to use natural consequences whenever possible instead of punishments. And so, as I'm sure most of you already know the idea, if my kid is climbing on the jungle gym with their ice cream cone and I say, don't climb on the jungle gym with your ice cream cone in your hand and the ice cream cone drops, a natural consequence is that they don't get an ice cream cone to replace the one that they might learn the value of heeding the word of their mother and father. And so the natural consequence ends up functioning uh, more efficaciously than maybe a punishment could have. Um, It's a canvas in which to teach a lesson of valuing the word of their parents. So the lesson for us in our passage today is that if we've tasted of the true bread of heaven, if we know Christ, if we're known by him, then we know that he is a never-ending supply. He models his own giving to others in his weakness. And then he disciples, even in this passage today, he disciples his followers to function in the same manner. So then we must eat of the bread which is him, which is Jesus, and give and serve when it appears that we have nothing to give and to serve with. When we feel empty. Because our faith is in the bread of life. And not in what the circumstances may appear to be or whether our strength will hold up. He doesn't fail. And when we're empty ourselves. For his sake. And for the gospel's sake. And specifically not for the sake of altruism or um, the great reputation of being a philanthropist. When we serve in our weakness for the gospel's sake, we find that he fills us. And we find that he is enough, he's sufficient to the point that we can actually do more than we ever thought possible. This is the point of our passage. God will bring you to a place where you have nothing so that his glory will be unadulterated with our gifts and successes. And it's a lesson. It's a canvas on which he decides to teach us faith, dependency on him. Don't be afraid of being empty. Don't be afraid of accepting your own deficiency. Don't be quick and eager to get out of moments where you're devoid of strength. It's uncomfortable for us, right? But like natural consequences, those moments of defeatedness and deficiency are ones in which God sees a perfect canvas for teaching us faith in him. Not trusting in our strength, not trusting in our good record, 
or our ability to do the right thing. In this account of the feeding of the 5,000, in John, in a parallel account that John's describing, we're in Matthew's account, Jesus is asked by the crowd in John 6, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You're not ever going to outgrow that lesson. That gospel message is not freshman class Christianity. That moment, or those moments in which we find ourselves recognizing, I, I just need to trust to believe, to have faith, all the same word, right? I just need to I, I trust Jesus. I don't have any other option in this moment. That's, that's closeness to the gospel. That's good. That's, if you can be consistent with that your whole life, that's a trajectory of maturity, right? And in this way, you don't ever want to grow out of infancy. If in the way of, of an infant, you say, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. I, I, I help. I can't do anything without you. I can't breathe without you. That dependency isn't immature Christianity. That's not the negative infant that Paul wants us to grow out of. That's a Christian that's clinging to faith in Christ. You don't only do that when you come to the Lord. You stay there. That's his message. Jesus has done all these works, all these awesome things. And the people say to him, what works do we have to do so we can do the works God wants us to do? Because Jesus is doing all these amazing works and he's about to do another one. But he says up front, even before he does this, listen, this is the work God wants you to do. Be shipwrecked on me. What do you think he wants from you? Why do you think I'm doing all this? I'm the bread. I'm the rock of refuge. Don't you see? In the next section, it's the walking on water section. We won't get there today. But in about that section, Spurgeon points out, listen, when do you think Peter was closer to the Lord? When he was walking on the water? Or when he was drowning and screaming, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. Right? And Spurgeon goes, he's closest to the gospel when he's drowning. When he's realizing this is not normal. This is too much for me. No one in the history of the earth should be expected to be able to do this. This is not normal. And as soon as he starts to realize that and, and become crushed by it all, he calls out to the Lord, which was the lesson all along. Right. Did you think you were doing that without me? Apparently he started to, right? Because his desperation for the gospel and for Jesus doesn't really kick in until all of a sudden the city starts to collapse around him. And then it's like he remembers the truth that he has an outgrown freshman Christianity. He needs him every hour. And so why should we be surprised then if God actually allows us to come into these moments where 
Or all of a sudden we realize we are in way over our heads. This is not right. This is not normal. Where is God? This is, this is all collapsing around me. Ah, ah, God, God, help, help. Right? That's the lesson. Believe on him whom the Father has sent. This is Jesus' rebuke for how they did not trust in him as the answer to their poverty and weakness. There's something purposeful and remarkable in verse 19. Oops, sorry, I skipped thing. It's easy to think of the disciples being in a sort of um, sin vacuum, right? Where Jesus teaches them these lessons. Uh, it's, it, it's fine and well if it's natural. It's fine and well if, um, if uh, all of a sudden things get to be too much. But oftentimes the Christian then says, but wait a minute, I'm in this situation because of sin, not just generic living. That's a different thing. I did this to myself. It's the same lesson. It's the same lesson. There isn't any response. It, your sin, the, the sin that Jesus is dealing with here isn't sexual immorality. It's unbelief. And that frees us up, I think, to, to be able to recognize this is applicable to our own lives. I think sometimes we imagine if Jesus were going to teach this lesson to us, this feeding of the 5,000, okay? We imagine that I'm stressed out because I have a whole bunch of company coming over. And, and I don't think I have enough food to make every, for everybody. And Jesus comes into the kitchen, and I'm walking around going, I don't have enough, I don't have enough. And Jesus comes into the kitchen, and he rummages through the fridge, and he's able to make stone soup. And then the moral of the story is, I shouldn't have fretted, because Jesus sure can spread out ingredients. Why didn't I believe in him all along? That's the moral of the story. And God really can spread out ingredients, Right? And that's great that he can. But if that's the only lesson we get from this passage, then we're bankrupt. We're poor indeed. In fact, we're still in our poverty. And you'll keep being hungry as soon as the moral of the story wears off. Because there's a real feast here. And it's this. Faith in Christ demands that our living fall in line behind our confession and we will be satisfied only in him. That's the feast. The feast is that I can have nothing and be full in him. And it's all over the place. It's lunchtime. Guys, here's some money. Go buy lunch. They go buy lunch. They come back because he was hungry, right? And he turns around and he has this interaction with the woman at the well. And he, they come back with sandwiches. And he says, I'm not hungry. You guys eat it. He said, what? He goes, I already ate, right? What are you talking about you already ate? No, you see, it's actually sufficient in the temporal realm. It's actually sufficient to do the will of my father. It actually affects your real space-time continuum experiences so much so that you think that you're in a situation that naturally would, be, would require you to hunger and be fed. But I'm telling you, to feast on God himself is even nourishing in space and time. It shouldn't be that way, right? But guess what? People also shouldn't walk on water in space and time. This frees us up, as I said, because most of the situations of poverty and deficiency and great need in which we find ourselves aren't due to economic recessions or feudalism. 
but to our own sin. If we don't trust him to work in our deficiency, especially when our weakness and defeatedness is caused by our own sin, then we've failed to learn the lesson of the feeding. Of course your sin got you here, but maybe not the sin you think. The, the great sin is, is having departed from believing in him. This is what he wants you to do. Believe in him. And it's sin to depart from that. Fixate on him and feast. And then what this lesson shows us is afterwards, ask somebody to help you carry the baskets of blessing home. Afterwards. What did they want in the beginning? Well, look at this. What did they want? You have thousands of hungry people. Why don't somebody give us some baskets of food to feed these people then? Because it would take a lot of food to feed people, and they get it at the end. You want to keep that in mind. He doesn't give them that at the beginning. He gives them himself, and that's it. That's the lesson. Jesus is sufficient, even when you think you know how this scenario works. It's unbelief that constantly in the course of a marriage or a home, when someone says, we need the Lord, we need to pray, we need to seek him, and they say, oh yeah, well, seeking the Lord hasn't worked so well, has it? Praying ain't going to pay the electric bill, is it? And Jesus rebukes that attitude of saying, you think you need something other than me? You're already way off. You can pay the electric bill at the end of all this. Let's get the real issue front and center here. If you don't think you need me more than anything else, you're off. And that being off is called sin. Verse 13. Let's jump in. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As I said at the beginning, Jesus is struck hard by the news of John the Baptist's death. When Jesus heard what had happened, I believe is a reference to John the Baptist's death. It's, I think it's his initiative to retreat into solitude. He loved that man. He hears this and he withdraws there from there in a boat to a desolate place to be by himself. He seeks after solitude. And this is important. Firstly, let me say that I don't think his solitude seeking is simply a reaction to John's death alone. It's something Jesus does regularly. His being alone with the Father is a pattern for us. He shows in his own humanity that he needs it. And that's this. In, Thomas Merton says, solitude is essential in order to put our part in the, in the crowd right. Jesus' emphasis on being alone is so that he can come out of solitude to minister in, in the multiplicity and in the multitude. And I think that's important when you look at Jesus' foundation on praying. What is the foundation of all prayer? And Jesus prays corporately. It's private prayer. It's secret prayer. They had prayer, right? They already knew how to pray. It's Israel. 
They've got priests, they've got prayer, they've got it all. But they ask Jesus, we want to pray. Teach us to pray like you. And what's the distinction that he puts to them? He says, when you pray, okay, when you pray, go alone, get secret, get private. Three times. It's the foundation of prayer like Jesus is. It's different. There's something different about the way he prays. And this solitude, this aloneness with the Father seems to be foundational for him. We know that it's in solitude he spends time in the presence of the Father, even when he's physically depleted. His his initiative isn't to go find sleep. It's to go find aloneness with the Father, while others in the natural think, I got to sleep. That was a late night. That was crazy. That was a lot of people. Jesus goes off to be alone with the Father. And as I've said, the church historically has long recognized that solitude for the believer, time alone with the Father, is an essential part to our ability to be a member in the many, in the body, amongst the many. And here Jesus models this with his life. John is dead. And unlike anything else in the history of the world, except the death of Christ, The death of John truly marks the end of an era. And that's plain throughout Scripture, old old and new. These introductory verses to this famous working of a sign, the feeding of the multitude, the 5,000 by Jesus, gives us the insight we need to understand the application of the passage. Remember our setup. Jesus is looking for a place to be alone. He's leaving people. He's seeking away from the crowd for solitude. It's what he wants. And in his humanity, we can say he needs it. He's brought to a place in his seeking of solitude. In which he is face to face with what? The needs of many. One man getting away from some men encounters many, 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 many men. And this is our lesson, okay? Because you will feel overwhelmed. You will be pressed on all sides. You will feel like this is not normal. This is not natural. This is too much for me. This is impossible. People should not be able to be doing this. How can God expect this of me? He has not given me the resources or the equipment to be able to handle this, etc., etc. And Jesus says over and over, look at me, look at me. Yes, I have. Look at me, look at me. But I'm sinking. You're not looking at me. It's the gospel over and over and over, over and over and over. I just need him always. And he's enough. This is not one of these moments where self-care is advocated for. And there are other places where Jesus retreats and takes care of himself so that he can have something to give. There are those moments. But this is not one of them. And so you want to be careful not to temper 
the meaning of this passage with the need for self-care to the point that we actually invert the properties of this passage. Jesus is showing us here and teaching us. He's teaching his disciples. And that, according to John 17, extends beyond these guys all the way to us. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's training them how to do this thing that he himself is doing. He's not asking his disciples to do something that he isn't right in the middle of doing himself. I need to be alone. I need to get away from you guys. And he comes face to face with thousands more of what he just thought he needed to leave. Thousands times what he thought he just needed to leave. And he's going to ask the disciples to do exactly what he's in the middle of doing. He's training us. Jesus is showing us service out of one's own weakness, not a self-care in order to serve others. And we don't want to take the sting away from the meaning of this text by playing devil's advocate and trying to neutralize the, the thrust of this passage and saying, well, I mean, if you don't have something to give, you'll be no good to anyone, right? Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes... You try to get away because you think you can't take anymore. And you're running from a puddle straight into the face of a tsunami for one reason. And that's what the Lord's ordained for you. And that's a specific kind of situation. It's the one we see here about our Lord, sorrowful, tired, seeking a peace that only comes far from the matting crowd. Spurgeon says this about him. He was a stag that fled from the huntsmen, but they had overtaken him and he yielded himself to them. Verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me, he said. So we know from John's account, and any of you guys who ever went to Sunday school as a kid, you know this is true. It's actually a little boy's lunch, isn't it? And they're, yeah, in Matthew's account, they're saying, look. We've only got enough lunch for ourselves, right? It's this little boy who's the rightful possessor. And I don't think it's injustice to the text to surmise that the disciples are actually already thinking in a self-preservation manner. And that's getting corrected. That's my point. Their, their propensity to look out for number one, their propensity to say like, hey, hey, if we're going to keep doing this ministry, we got to make sure we eat first. There will be no good to the crowds. And Jesus in this instance, and not in every instance, but in this instance, he's rebuking that because he himself rebukes it in himself. He turns away from it in himself and he's training his disciples. There are times when you will have to, but because the disciples mindset is already they've already looked for lunch for themselves and they only have enough for themselves. Who knows, right? Maybe maybe a little bit of money, maybe an opportunity to luncheon with the Lord. Somehow the boys lunch ends up being categorized as their lunch. 
There are thousands of people. And the disciples have already combed through the crowd because they speak authoritatively when they say, look, this is all we have. They found food, enough for themselves, and they said, get rid of everybody else. We're in need right now. We're hungry. There's not enough for us and anyone else. Get rid of them or what? Or we'll go hungry. Who knows what? Maybe we'll get sick. Maybe we can't handle it. Maybe something worse. So remember our pattern. Jesus is sad. Jesus desires to be alone. He sees the needs of others. And he sacrifices his own will for the gospel's sake. He preaches to thousands of people. He's with this band of disciples. And now he's going to even work at meeting their physical needs. The disciples are you and me. We're the learners. He's teaching them and us. They're exhausted and hungry. And he tells them to keep giving When they have nothing to give. And he's just done this himself. Even his act of training the disciples. Is a continuance of that service. He's still reeling from John's death. He just preached. And now he's going to train these guys. He's training them in the way of the cross. And us. Because we're called regularly to give when we feel like we're unable or when we feel like it's impractical or unnatural or impossible or that we have nothing to give or we're hoping to steal away for some self-care so that we can be of service to others. Jesus' situation. Here's our lesson. Believe on him. Aim at him. Trust in him. To be greater than your weakness, greater than your mess that your sin has made. There's no other way out of the grave your sin has dug than faith in Christ alone. There isn't another option. And yet, a lot of Christians believe that about our justification. But when it comes to daily living, we feel like we've got to kind of muscle it in the strength of the flesh. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who's tricked you? You don't ever outgrow the gospel. It's gospel all the way down, right? Verse 19, and he directed the people to sit sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples and then the disciples gave them to the people. See the pattern? Now, there's something purposeful and remarkable in 19. It's this progression in which things are done. They find this for themselves. Jesus says, give it to me. Jesus takes it and gives it to the Father. And then he gives it back to them and says, now give it away. Go give it away. Your lunch. In your hunger. Give it away. And that's not to be missed. It's from the disciples he's taken the food. Food they were coveting for themselves. 
This is all they have. Jesus says, good, give it to me. And when he gives it back, he offers it to the Lord. And they must give it to others if they will obey him. And now in doing this, they're doing what Jesus is doing right now. In this moment, he is doing this. Are you hungry? Are you depleted? Are you tired? Are you sad? Is he still calling you to give? Is he still calling you to serve? Has he broken his bread and given it to you? Then don't take your eyes off of him. Train yourself on his hands and feet. Feed on him by faith. Feed on him by faith. Don't look away. Or in your inability, in your sin, in your unbelief, you'll be in danger of dying of hunger. There isn't any other bread anywhere else in the whole world. He is it. And when we divert our eyes from him and think, well, but right now I just need what? Something else. Verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the lesson of the cross that should be ever before us. If you're full, if you're full, God in his mercy may empty you in order to bring you to a place where his glory will be unadulterated by your strength and by your gifts and by your successes. This emphasis is a giving out of our need and not our abundance. The meal ratio here would be one loaf of bread for every 1,000 men. At our fellowship, we do a little little gluten-free roll. It's like a little loaf. And, you know, sometimes there's like 60, 70 people, right? So you can imagine what this little loaf looks like by the time, by the time we're done. One loaf per thousand men. Right? That's going into the scenario. Come on. You feel spread thin? I think Jesus is teaching us to not keep our eyes fixed on the horizon for a basket of bread to show up. Don't fix your eyes on the horizon waiting for a basket of bread to meet your need if that basket of bread isn't hanging on a cross. Don't get distracted. That's looking for the wrong thing. That's actually diverting our eyes from the answer. I know not according to the world, right? According to normal people, everyday normal folk who've been to school, a basket of bread would make more sense here, right? right? Isn't Jesus always doing this to us, though? Right? Walk, walking on water? People don't walk on water. 
The basket of bread in our lesson is just the parting gift. They got it when they were full, just so they knew its place. What? A basket of baskets and baskets of bread will fix this? I'll let you have all that once you've actually eaten and been satisfied. And I'll show you who needs this. And they could learn, well, we don't need it now. And did you ever need it? They didn't ever need it. That's why he gave it to them at the end. Everybody's already full. All right. I want you to see something. Gather up the leftovers. You didn't ever need this. All you needed was him. Jesus was empty, but because of godly compassion, he gives it a cost to himself. He retreats to be ministered to, and he ends up ministering. His disciples are sinful, selfish, covetous, self-seeking, but ultimately unbelieving. Ah, thinks Jesus. This is the perfect canvas to teach them about faith. And that's why you can take heart and be hopeful. Because we are disciples who are very much like these ones. Because we're disciples who are obsessed with a million other things. Things that, because we're fixed on them, will crush us. Will drown us. And Jesus, in his mercy and compassion, presents himself as everything and proves it. Luke fourteen fifteen. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. That's the real feast. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to remember the things your word has told us. Please stir in us a zeal and a passion to be believers. Please forgive us our distraction. Please help us in our weakness. We just look around all the time and our whole view of reality is shaped by by our environment. Make us people who believe on Jesus And we'll see him do in Southwest Harbor at work on Monday. We'll see him do things that should be entirely impossible in this world. Not because we're staring at those signs. But because we're staring at the shepherd. The savior. God, help us not even in the midst of profound moments. Help us not to turn our eyes from the giver to the gifts. Help us not to seek after your, your blessing in provision 
We thank you for it, but help it not to be our object of affection and trust. We need you in this endeavor. In your name we pray. Amen.